Welcome to a show about nature. Over these seven episodes, we are discussing the wonderful creation we live in. Each time, I hope we learn something new and begin to see the world in a larger way. Maybe we could start imagining a world where all species thrive, including ourselves. No promises of entertainment here. Thanks for listening. In past episodes, we've covered land and many of the major uses of it. But land isn't all there is to the material creation around us. And I mentioned in the first episode, I want to look at water and air to round out the major elements in our world. Now, water is a moving target. I want to split water up over two episodes. And for purposes of simplicity, we're going to divide water up into salt and fresh water. The ocean is one of my favorite places. It teems with life and it's in constant motion. The ocean's alive with energy and it's a place that ancients feared because of its furious nature and its unknowable depths. It is referred to often as chaos in ancient cultures. But is it as chaotic as it seems to us on the surface? Just what do we know about the ocean? Well, we're going to look at some big questions and some small ones, like, why is the ocean salty? And at the end, I hope we will all have a better understanding of our world's oceans and seas. That's it. Join me as we break the surface and see what we find. With less than 5% of the world's oceans currently explored, every year is an important one for ocean discovery. And 2017 was no exception. In 2017, the World Register of Marine Species, which is a running list of species that live in the ocean, recorded 2,784 new species in just that year. So when you think life is passe and there's just about nothing that we as humans don't know, think about that number. 2,784 unique species. And that means that through what is supposed to be rigorous scientific study and evaluation, it has been determined that all 2,784 of those new species cannot reproduce with other species of the same kind. They're unique. 95% of the ocean is unexplored and almost 3,000 new species discovered in one year, the ocean certainly has lived up to its name as the Great Mysterious Deep. And perhaps we share with the ancients the wonder and the mystery of the ocean. But our pride often keeps us from admitting our ignorance in those ocean's ways. In 2017, one of those species was the largest bony fish to be discovered at sea to date. But wait, before we get into that, what is an ocean and what makes it different from other water bodies?
What jumps to mind when you ask yourself what makes the ocean different from other water bodies? Salt. We all instinctively know that salt makes the ocean. But why is the ocean salty? Have you ever asked that question? Well, according to the National Ocean Service, a division of NOAA, salt is the, in the ocean comes from two sources, runoff from land and openings in the seafloor. So rocks on land are the major source of salts dissolved in seawater. And rainwater that falls on land is, that is slightly acidic erodes the rock. This releases ions, or tiny parts of those rocks, that are carried away to streams and rivers and eventually feed the ocean. Many are used by organisms in the ocean, and they're removed from the water by that process. Others are not removed, so their concentrations increase with time. Another source of salts in the ocean are hydrothermal fluids and vents, which come from vents in the seafloor. Ocean water seeps into cracks in the seafloor and is heated by magma from the Earth's core. The heat causes a series of chemical reactions. The water tends to lose oxygen, magnesium, and sulfites and pick up metals such as iron, zinc, copper, from the surrounding rocks. The heated water is released through vents in the seafloor, carrying the metals with it. Some ocean salts come from underwater volcanic eruptions, which directly release minerals into the ocean. And the two most prevalent tiny rock particles in the seawater are chloride and sodium. Together, they make up around 85% of all dissolved ions in the ocean. And that's it for how the ocean is salty. Now, there is very little we actually know about the ocean. There's more we don't know than we do know. But as far as what we do know, let's look at some ocean facts right now. So let's go down a list of ocean facts. The world's oceans cover approximately 70% of the surface of the Earth, more than all continents combined, and the planet Earth is only the only planet to be known to have oceans. The oceans on Earth, in order from smallest to largest, include the Arctic Ocean, the Antarctic Ocean, the Indian Ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, and the largest being the Pacific Ocean. Yes. Now consider this. Less than 3% of the water on Earth is fresh water. The rest is all seawater. The combined area of the world's oceans encompasses 139 million square miles, which again is more than all the continents combined. There are hundreds and thousands of marine life forms known to man, but it is estimated that there may actually be millions of marine life forms in existence. Are you serious? The Pacific Ocean is the largest ocean on Earth, and it covers approximately 30% of the Earth's surface. And the deepest known part of the world's oceans is the Marina Trench, which many have heard of. It's located east of the Marina Islands, and it is around 1,100 meters deep at its deepest point. 
There are approximately 25,000 islands in the Pacific. The Arctic Ocean is almost completely covered in ice in the winter. And the largest mountain range on Earth is actually below the Earth's surface. It is called the Mid-Oceanic Ridge, and it runs from the middle of the Atlantic to the Indian and Pacific Oceans. It is more than 35,000 miles long, and it makes up 23% of the surface of the Earth. All right, this is an interesting one. Approximately 94% of the life on Earth is made up of aquatic life forms. About 90% of all volcanic activity, all those volcanoes, occur in oceans. There are approximately 350 species of sharks living in the world's oceans. And of these 350 species of sharks, only 32 have been known to attack people. There are another 36 species that are considered potentially dangerous to people. Volcanoes, earthquakes, and landslides that occur in the oceans can cause tsunamis, which are large sea waves. When they reach land, they can be traveling at speeds of 100 miles an hour or more. Pollution in the air contributes to about 33% of toxic contaminants in the ocean. So contaminants coming from air into the ocean, 44% of contaminants that land in the ocean are from rivers and streams. Let's go on to some more facts. Maybe not. The largest living structure on Earth is the Great Barrier Reef. It supports 400 species of coral, and it's so large, you knew this, you can see it from space. To us, the ocean is a vast unknown, and we assume that because we understand it that way, that's the way it is. We now know that the ocean is an interconnected world of cities towns, byways, and freeways. There are grocery stores and farming areas. And just like land, the ocean is an easily understandable thing to travel if you're a great white shark or a penguin. Huge intercontinental currents are like massive freeways that move species along. And barrier reefs are like the New York of the ocean. So we need to get out of our heads this idea that the ocean is a mysterious deep to those who live in it. To them, it's as understandable as the city streets that you live on. So one major area that we likely simply do not have enough knowledge is what role the ocean plays in our lives beyond the obvious. We all see the ocean as a place for animals and plants to live a place to recreate, and most obviously, a big hole with seawater in it. But let's look at it uh, at an aspect that isn't so well-known. Let's look at primary production. So the term primary production refers to the ocean's role in taking light from the sun and carbon dioxide from the air and combining them to turn them into usable energy. Funny enough... This ends up being sugars and carbohydrates, which is our own body's usable energy. And this is really cool. We refer to, quote, 
primary producers as organisms that make their own energy rather than eating other organisms for energy. So put simply, plants don't eat things to grow, but other organisms eat plants to grow. And now we normally understand that trees and plants have this role on land, right? But just remember that there are tons of, quote, trees and plants living in the ocean as well. And they depend on clean seawater to stay healthy. And so before we go further, there's a little bit of debate as to the actual amount of global primary production and conversion that oceans are responsible for. So think of it as you have the land and then you have ocean and on land you have trees that are, that are doing photosynthesis and um, taking carbon dioxide and turning it into oxygen. Well, we're going to discuss a little bit more about that in a minute. Um, and popular data and scientific literature range from about 42% to 75% um, of primary production is done by ocean organisms. So that would be those trees, quote, plants in the ocean. And probably common sense would uh, dictate that this percentage fluctuates over time and even seasonally, depending on things that are happening. But uh, yeah, anywhere from 42 to 75% of primary production. So that's like the breathing, right? The exchange of carbon dioxide to oxygen that is going on. So let's say it's 50% just, to, just for our sake. And the ocean does this through what we might call uh, ocean plants, like we said, like algae, seaweed, and things like that. But it also does it through things we can't see with the naked eye, um, the largest being phytoplankton. These are microscopic and they exist in the ocean. So imagine this process uh, in terms of our car analogy that we've been using. Algae on those rocks at the beach are like the car engine and they take in sunlight and carbon dioxide and produce energy for themselves to grow. And in turn, for something to eat them and grow as well, right? But just like the car engine that we were talking about, they spew out exhaust, right, after that process. And the exhaust that they spew out is oxygen. And the waste, quote, waste, produced by that process is the, the very thing that we humans and other mammals depend on entirely. So the whole system is this amazing system. And microscopic unseen plants drifting all through the ocean are living off the exhaust that we give. And we, in part, live off the exhaust that they give. Um, it really, you couldn't think up a better system even in some kind of fantasy land. So um, whether you consider yourself a beach person or not, remember, in a way, we're all beach people. All oceans provide this vital function to our flourishing and the flourishing of all species. So do we have a better view of the ocean after going over these facts? A better understanding? Well, if we have a better understanding of the ocean and how it functions, there are two main areas I want to focus on in this episode Unfortunately, we're going to have to cover these quickly, and we're going to cover them next.
Humans can and do affect the ocean and its well-being. Now, like we've said in other episodes, systems can adapt to changes, both the introduction of new things and the removal of items. But as we've also said, there's a limit to how much systems can absorb and keep functioning in a healthy way. Also, there's nothing morally wrong with humans affecting the ocean. Really? All species affect the systems they live in and around, but the question is how much is too much and can we affect it in a way that promotes life and thriving? Now, there are big threats to our ocean's health. According to National Geographic, these main threats include warming sea surface, overfishing of certain species, air pollutants responsible for about half the toxic contaminants, pollutants coming via streams and rivers, and factories and industrial plants discharging treated runoff into the ocean. Now, I don't blame you one bit for questioning the validity of these so-called threats. The reason I don't blame you is that the environmental issues have been so politicized that often, quote, facts and, quote, statistics have been exaggerated or made up to allow scientists to back their pet projects and improve their political party's standings. No way. Scientists and environmentalists have been peddling doom since they came on the scene. And it's enough to make anyone question modeling or any kind of future predicting. Just a couple examples of this. In 1969, we were told that the population at the time would implode. James P. Lodge, scientist at a National Center for Atmospheric Research, said that in 1970, air pollution might obliterate the sun and cause a new ice age. Also, Dr. S.I. Razul of NASA agreed with this new ice age, claiming that it would occur in the next 50 years due to fossil fuel burning. The climate community in 1976 agreed that a new ice age was coming due to the ozone hole. When climatologists tell us that there will be a drought, we often have years of wetter weather. And the UN reported that sea level rise would destroy countries by 1968, as well as predicting an end to water supplies by 1992. Lastly, in 1988, more recently, predictions were made that areas of the U.S. would be underwater due to climate change. I list those, quote, predictions to hopefully engender some trust with folks that are skeptical. People are not perfect, and scientists are people. And that means scientists are flawed like everyone else. No way. I think the general public, universities, and elected officials should know that. And understand it. That being said, if we react against reasonable ecologists who are sounding an alarm on various issues by ignoring those alarms, it is not an exaggeration to say that we will suffer on a variety of levels. No doubt. Remember when we were discussing timber in our last episode? So back in the 70s and 80s, environmental, environmental radicals were chaining themselves to trees making dire predictions and vandalizing operations. And those were over the top. A lot of that was over the top, but much of their concerns were valid. And in fact, we owe the changes that the timber industry made to a lot of those difficult and tumultuous years. So I would say this, 
let's all try to understand that people are bringing environmental concerns to the table, urban sprawl, groundwater depletion, wetlands restoration, agricultural contamination, and sometimes we all don't communicate those in a positive way. And rather than viewing environmental issues as a threat, I think we can see them as a way to make improvements and understand the trade-offs that are inevitable in all of these situations. So let's discuss a couple stories that might serve to illustrate the point. Let's look at some things that we know as facts. Have you ever heard of shark finning? It's not something everyone has heard of, but shark finning is where people catch sharks, they cut off their fins, all of them, and then they throw the rest of the shark back into the ocean to die from blood loss or suffocation. What the? Sometimes whole sharks are taken to shore by these uh, fishermen, so the finning can happen and the meat can be used, but the vast majority of shark finning happens on the boat because the room on the boat is valuable and they don't want to waste it with the shark's body. So instead they want to cut the fins off and keep the fins only on the boat. Now, listen, you like me might be asking yourself, why do people do this? It seems kind of odd and confusing. And wrong. Well, Asian markets pay a huge price for shark fins because they use them for shark fin soup and traditional medicines. So the fin is more valuable than the whole shark. And depending on who you ask, 30 to 73 to 100 million sharks per year are killed for their fins. And even if the estimate is the lower end of the scale, we're talking about everyone in California every year being killed. Those numbers are staggering. But why does it matter? The answer is going to come to us in the form of a conservation story of great success, the California sea otter. Both sharks and the California sea otter, also known as the southern sea otter, are keystone species. This means that it is a species which often sits at the top of the food chain and has a disproportionate effect on the natural environment that it lives in. So relative to its abundance, it has a massive effect on the area it lives. Think of this in the analogy that we've been using for the car and the car engine. You can run the car without a muffler. We've talked about that. It's efficient. It's not as efficient, but it will run. But one item that has a disproportionate importance to the system is oil. No oil, and the system will quickly destroy itself. Oil would be like a keystone species because it is small proportionally, to the whole system, but without it, the system can't run. So back to the otters. Sea otters have a unique ability. They do not use blubber to keep warm in the freezing cold waters in which they live. They use a fur coat that scientists claim has up to a million hairs per square inch. Come on. Now this made their fur hugely desirable in the Asian fur markets of the late 1800s. The Russian and native Alaskan hunters began to hunt them. And of all the animals trapped and killed during the fur trade, the highest prized was the northern sea otter, with the southern sea otter being a close second. After traders hunted the northern sea otter to extinction, they focused on the southern otter. 
Now, otters used to inhabit the whole Pacific Rim. So the area from Central California up to Canada and around Alaska into Russia and down to Japan. But as hunters began to kill the species, they moved around the rim all the way to Monterey County in California. And in the 1800s, they had destroyed all the populations, leaving them extinct in their native range. Until the California Department of Fish and Game received a letter dated February 2nd, 1915, from John W. Astro, who reported that he had observed a small colony of sea otters by his lighthouse in a remote area of Big Sur on the foreboding California coast. California Department of Fish and Game biologists at the time were quoted as saying that they would have been no less surprised had someone showed them a photo of a dinosaur. And if you haven't been to this area of California, Big Sur is the perfect place to hide a colony from fur traders who had, the, who had successfully eliminated a species everywhere else. Big Sur is remarkable because it is of its remoteness and with no roads at the time, the huge mountains driving, diving straight into the sea with relentless surf pounding the coast provided the perfect opportunity to keep hunters out. These otters became national heroes when Life Magazine did a story on them and in 1938. And protected by law, they began to bounce back with numbers now exceeding 3,000 on the central coast of California. And the sea otter is taking a rightful place in the kelp marine ecosystem. And we've seen dependent species flourish as well. So remember the airmen from Elliot Merrick's book? The airman was known to Merrick because he trapped it for its fur. The airman is the same family as the otter. And at the turn of the last century, the truth is, we didn't know what we didn't know. We didn't know that we were destroying whole natural ecosystems by relentlessly pursuing and killing these species. But now we do know. We have stories and examples like the sea otter that show that when we make a little change, we can share, change the world for all the species that live in it uh, below that uh, main keystone species. So do people have a right to otter fur hats? How about shark fin soup? How about aluminum iPhones? We have learned over the last century that humans are amazing with their ability to kill every bug, destroy every fish, and feed every human. We're able to have a huge impact on our natural environment, and we ought to consider just what kind of future we want. So perhaps shark fin soup is fine on a limited scale. Perhaps it's not. One thing is certain, and it's beyond debate. We cannot ignore the natural systems which we have so much power to harm or even break. These systems were set in place to feed us and to keep our world habitable. The systems themselves are a gift. We will alter systems. That's beyond doubt. We have to. But how can we live build, and flourish in a way that all species thrive. Do you need some more encouragement? Watch the documentary Wild Pacific. In the film, the migration of the Pacific gray whale is described. 
They migrate 12,000 miles from the Arctic to a bay in Mexico to give birth to their calves. Turns out the bay provides just the right mixture of safety from predators, biological life, warm, oxygen-rich waters for the whales to nurse their young to maturity. And given that these whales can't reproduce until they're 30 years old, this is a big moment in their life. Not usually an aggressive animal, when whalers found this bay in the 1850s and started killing the young calves, it is said that one in four men were maimed or killed by mother whales attacking the boats. With only a few hundred of these whales left by the 1940s, laws were put in place to protect them. Conservationists started to visit the bay to help. And to date, there are an estimated 20,000 Pacific gray whales. Now listen, more remarkable is that in the bay that we talked about, where before mother whales were coming alongside boats and killing men, they now come alongside conservationist boats and display a strange behavior where they roll over and let the people pet them for sometimes up to an hour. Do you not believe this? It's true. Maybe we don't know nearly as much as we think about the natural world around us. Discoveries of all kinds are still waiting to be explored. Remember that largest bony fish I mentioned at the beginning of the show? It's called the hoodwinked sunfish. Sunfish look like a big plate, with this species getting over eight feet long and weighing up to two tons. As they are largely solitary, they live in remote parts of the ocean and they dive hundreds of meters down to eat before rising to the surface to sunbathe on their sides. Scientists had scale samples of a species of sunfish that they thought was unique, but they had never seen the species. So the hunt was on, and hundreds of people, citizens, government, fishermen, scientists, started looking for the sunfish. And finally, in 2017, in the waters surrounding South Island in New Zealand, the species was observed, documented, and officially listed. The largest bony fish in the ocean to date. What else don't we know? What else are we ignorant about? Do we know as much as we think we do about the ocean, its role, and how we affect it? The ocean is a big subject. We haven't even dipped our toe in it. But we have to stop because we have to get on to the other waters of the earth, fresh water. Just think, we can't drink the ocean, but we have fresh water for both us and other species. And have you ever wondered how that is? Well, guess what? There's a system for that as well. And we're going to discuss that next time. So till then, thanks for listening.